This is the Amazing Education Podcast. Powered by the Ames Community School District, I'm your host, Eric Smith. On today's episode, we are joined by Dr. Katie Swalwell. We're going to have an amazing conversation in this part one of two episodes on critical consciousness and how school districts can have conversations about inequities and racism. Dr. Katie Swalwell, thank you for coming on this episode of the Amazing Education Podcast. I am so excited about this episode and having this conversation and continuing this conversation in the public. Mm -hmm, And so mm -hmm. what we're talking about is critical consciousness. So Mm -hmm. Dr. Swalwell, along with Dr. Daniel Spikes, they've been working with our district for the past two years. This is their third year. And we've had really amazing conversations around this. And so I want this podcast episode to be sort of a 101 course on critical consciousness so that we can inform and educate people about what we're doing in the district, but also why it's important, I think, for all school districts and really almost every industry to to be having these conversations. Because I know on a personal level, I feel like I have grown and I start, I've, I've seen things differently thanks to you and Dr. Spikes and I think that's incredible. I think that's the goal for for everyone who goes through this. And so, um, let's get started. And what is critical consciousness? <laughs> it's, it's like a big question. Yeah. So we're going to lead off with it. No, that's great. And it's a term people might not be so familiar with yeah. either. Uh, I think a lot of, like you said, industries or even other districts, um, buzzwords that you hear right now are maybe diversity training or cultural competency training, multicultural training. And one of the reasons we focus on critical consciousness, it's not that we don't think diversity is important or multiculturalism is important, but a lot of those frameworks end up focusing on celebrating difference. Like, you are a man and I'm a woman and we're different and isn't that great? We, or you're white and you're black and we're different and we're both beautiful and isn't that great? We, like um, an affirmation, a celebration of difference. And I, I know I sound a little bit like I'm making fun of that approach. I absolutely value on difference and think it's really important and it is beautiful and it's important to celebrate but what Dr. Spikes and I and other scholars and other practitioners the framework that we use says yes difference exists and ought to be celebrated but we don't live in a vacuum where difference is treated the same and we live in a world that has historical and contemporary forces that treat difference really differently so for example, um, you know, your experience in the world as a man is really different than my experience in the world as a woman. And not just like, oh, interesting, fun fact differences, but like differences that have made material negative impacts on my life as a woman living in a system that has privileged the male experience. And so there, di- the difference isn't just to be celebrated, but the power and how resources have been distributed inequitably, um, not just in the past, but still today, that has to be something that we're also attending to and paying attention to. If we aren't considering the ways that people um, experience the world differently because of their different identities, we're missing a huge part of the picture. And when we look at disparities in outcomes and opportunities, we have to 
grapple with the way that power and difference relate to each other. And that's really what critical consciousness is talking about. It's not simply saying, oh, the solution is to celebrate diversity. The, what, what years of scholarship and what these scholars and practitioners are saying is, yes, we want to affirm difference, but we also want to acknowledge the power difference that exists and the structural and systemic forces that are hurting and disadvantaging some folks because of their identity and privileging others. So that that piece of it, that awareness and understanding allows us to not only see problems that exist that we might not have even seen before, but also accurately diagnose what's causing them so that we can be really strategic about how to make it better. If we can't see that and all we're doing is celebrating difference, then we're just perpetuating the problem even if our intentions are really good. Well, we're going to talk about a lot of those <laughs> things coming up, um, especially the intention part. Mm-hmm. I, I mm-hmm. agree with you, and I appreciate the celebration of mm-hmm. differences because I think we do we do need to do those things. Mm-hmm. But in some ways, that's kind of an easy way out if that's the mm-hmm. end of the conversation. Mm-hmm. And the thing that I really value that that you have brought. Um, to our district is being able to challenge us and force us to have difficult conversations. Because I think when you really get into this and really start Mm -hmm. analyzing the work and Mm -hmm. thinking about the work, it changes the way that you see everything and in all the right ways. Um, (laughs) But it doesn't necessarily make any, the conversations easier. Um, (laughs) Why is this essential for school districts, Mm -hmm. not just our school district, but, but, every school district mm-hmm. to have this conversation and to do this work. Right, to really focus on like the power side of things. Yes. Right? And I, I agree with you. I think even when you talk about this stuff all the time, it's, it isn't necessarily easier and sometimes it is really hard, but it's super necessary. So I would say there's two reasons why schools in particular really need to think about critical consciousness. And the first reason is maybe hard for some people to come to this realization and I I was a high school teacher for years and I absolutely loved it so much and I I really care about public education and this is even hard for me to acknowledge sometimes but there's literally decades of research thousands of studies showing that schools as institutions are actually producers of this kind of inequity and disparity that they through their structures and their policies and their practices actually generate and create this disparity and these power differences and advantage certain groups and disadvantage other groups through the way that they operate as an institution. And this is despite the individual people within that system maybe not wanting that to be the case. But if you don't have a mindset of critical consciousness, you literally can't see or diagnose that that's what's happening in your system. So that's why it's so important for us to equip people almost like night vision goggles, like the ability to see the ways in which our system, our institution of school, is actually contributing to and producing inequality. So what would be some examples of that? Yeah, so there's so many. (laughs) It's hard to choose. Um, I mean, one way, my background is in curriculum and in social studies in particular. And the social studies curriculum is notoriously really, really, really bad. Like, it is focused on a very narrow Um, perspective, and I know this probably sounds cliche to people, but there's been lots of studies about textbooks, say, that really show the perspective of white, wealthy, male, settler, (laughs) English-speaking 
folks yeah. that it's their position is kind of the people whose stories are worth knowing about and the people who had um, the most influence on the nation, despite a lot of historical evidence to the contrary, that's kind of the narrative that gets told in those textbooks. And so the problem with that is that it ends up framing for kids, like the, these are the people whose stories are worth knowing. Other people don't have important contributions or aren't really worth knowing about unless we have like an extra special day in February. Yeah. And that just isn't true. And so we end up um, reinforcing and, and giving kids who share those identities a really inflated sense of self, which actually can be super damaging if you know, you somehow don't live up to that and you have the sense that, you know, you're supposed to be this super powerful, privileged person. I mean, there's a there's a lot of interesting research showing the way that um, being on the kind of privileged side of that narrative can do a lot of damage to your psyche. Um, but on the flip side, if you don't share that identity, you don't see yourself anywhere in the curriculum no. and you don't see yourself as anyone worth learning about or that the schools formally think is is important. So that's just one example in curriculum, but in terms of like disciplinary practices, um, what extracurriculars are offered, what kind of policies the school has, when they offer parent-teacher conferences, yeah. um, what kind of transportation they offer to things, like literally every single aspect of the school is if it's not done with a really deliberate critical consciousness in mind, can very easily reproduce um, the middle class, white, Eurocentric yeah. norms that our schools were, were built on. And I think um, specifically in Iowa, and this is true pretty much for everyone in the United States, our public schools were specifically founded to serve white children. That was like very explicitly what they were founded for. And so if you aren't very consciously, deliberately trying to interrupt that, that just gets, that's built into the DNA of the system and it will just reproduce itself. So we have to be really intentional about trying to do different things and yeah. reorienting the system to serve everybody better. And, and truly everyone is served better when we have a more critically conscious, equitable school. The second reason why I think schools have to engage in this work, I mean, the first is that we should because we're responsible for the damage in many cases and that we need to fix that. Um, you know, we're not the only institution and all institutions can contribute to this, but we have some agency within this particular institution yeah. and, you know, ought to do something about it. The second reason is that we are tasked with educating the future generations of our community. And I would make a strong case for the fact that we, especially if we're going to have a healthy democracy that depends upon a really educated, compassionate populace that is able to collaborate across difference, that's able to take multiple perspectives, um, that's able to like collectively identify and solve problems, that's the nature of democracy. We have to make sure that our young people are also critically conscious, that yeah. they are able themselves to understand these systems and forces and how they work um, and then be able to act. So that's once, you know, it's, it's not like one comes first and then the other. You can work on both at the same time. But um, let's say our system was absolutely perfect and there wasn't a single inequitable policy or practice happening. We would still have this other obligation like, OK, then we need to be preparing young people to be able to think about these things. I, I think one important thing to mention here, um, not to ramble on too long about this point, <laughs> I am a professor, um, but I, I think one thing that makes people uncomfortable or nervous about this conversation in particular, but kind of generally speaking, 
um, issues of equity or talking about racism specifically mm -hmm. or, you know, all of these different areas of social justice is this, like, sense of fear that they're trying to be indoctrinated into a particular, like, partisan agenda. Okay. Um, and I, I, Daniel Spikes and I, my partner in this yep. work, we are constantly stressing that this it is a it is political work in the little p political sense that mm -hmm. we're talking about power and distribution of resources and community problem solving and identifying like that's inherently little p political but it absolutely is not partisan and actually every political party benefits from having people that have a deeper more sophisticated understanding of how these things work and what kinds of problems we're facing, what the root causes of those problems are, how we ought to address them, how we ought to solve them, um, using evidence to make those decisions, um, being really intentional and thoughtful about having multiple perspectives involved. Like there isn't any um, sense. I mean, hopefully if there is a political party that says we're not cool with that, then yeah, I guess this is a partisan thing, but sure. I, I can't imagine um, this is about reaching all students. It is. I mean, it's, it's about making sure that we have a healthy community that doesn't have super predictable mm -hmm. patterns of disparity and inequity. And right now, Ames isn't alone in this, no. for sure. Um, this is what's so frustrating about the institution of public schooling and the history of where it comes from, that it is super predictable. And it's not because there's anything inherent in that student that's producing it um, it's not like and it, you might hear differently but there's again decades of research to suggest that this is not the case but you know when we look at patterns let's say of girls participation in stem courses or stem mm -hmm. extracurriculars this is the difference between what we call a critically conscious mindset and then the kind of opposite of that is a deficit mindset so a deficit mindset might look at that and say well girls just aren't as good at science they're not interested. They're just, they're not into it. Right. They're not smart enough. They're not good at it. Like it internalizes the blame to, to those students. Mm -hmm. Instead of saying, wait, 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 what can we see that the, the way that the system is operating that is producing the conditions to either the conditions that would make it unlikely that a female student would opt into that, or the conditions that even when they're trying to opt in are forcing them out. Right. So then it shifts your focus away from that individual student's internal you know, genetic makeup and saying somehow there's like genetic reasons or like internal reasons why it's happening to say that there's actually socializing forces and systemic reasons why these conditions are being created and that if you change that, you're able to change the the overall outcomes. And it's not to say that every single girl is now really into STEM, um, but it's to say that the those patterns of disparity would be way less predictable um, and maybe wouldn't even exist at all. So definitions are very <laughs> important mm -hmm. in critical consciousness. Mm -hmm. And I think they help us understand, mm -hmm. but then they also at times can it brings it out in people to put up their defenses mm. as well, mm -hmm. which I know that you have encountered, <laughs> um, not necessarily here, or not just here, but I mean, yeah. in, in yeah, all yeah. of your work that, that yeah. you've done, I mean, you, you've run into this. And so let's do um, maybe a quick blast on, on a couple, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> on a couple definitions. Okay. Um, 
let's start let's start with the big one how, how we define racism and so uh -huh. I'll, okay. I'll put myself mm -hmm. in uh let's i'm a teacher in mm -hmm. in training okay I, i'm not a racist mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i, I well, i could say a lot of things here <laughs> i i, I but uh, let's say I, I i'm not racist right. i i so why are you talking about racism in right. my classroom right i mean and this this is coming you're white i hope that's not shocking anyone I, in the I, audience I, okay. I, 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 I we are videotaping this as well um so you you could say something like um you know i don't see color and I love I love all my students, and I don't notice or see their race. Or you might say, maybe I see race, but I have black friends, or I have Latinx friends, or you know, I mm -hmm. couldn't possibly be racist because, um, you know, I have this friend in my life who why would they be friends with me if I weren't racist? So those right. are two kind of common yeah. things that Daniel and I hear from people. Mm -hmm. I mean, not just us; like they're they're out in the world. Correct. So you know what we really try to to showcase. So this is <laughs> kind of a weird person to quote, but I love this quote. And I'm pretty sure it's from John Stewart, the comedian. And he says, okay. um, you know, we've done a really good job at teaching people that racism is bad. Mm -hmm. We've done a terrible job at teaching people what racism is. And I think that encapsulates this really beautifully. So when we think of the word racist, a lot of people in their minds, I think especially white people, because mm -hmm. we, and I say we because I also identify as white, yep. um, that our kind of training is to think of a racist and then immediately think of like a clan member, like yep. someone taking the most extreme position and taking really extreme violent action deliberately against people of color. And well, it's this good, bad binary of- Exactly. Of, yeah. Yes. And that those people exist and that's definitely bad and that's yes. definitely in the camp of racism. Yep. Um, What's frustrating is that racism doesn't depend on those people to exist. And in fact, that's like the easiest thing to point out and say is bad. But actually, racism is way more pernicious and deeper than that. And, and white supremacy even, which I think that's another word that conjures up like yeah. cross burnings and yep. clan hood wearing people. But it's this, it's this sense that whiteness is the norm against which everything else is measured. So yeah. that's like just the normal thing, or even that's the good thing. Um, but even if you don't go that far, you just think of it as like the norm um, that is assumed. So for yeah. instance, if you hear in the news, you might hear someone say, a man was arrested today for blah, blah, blah. And there's no racial identifier. And so the assume, we're all supposed to assume it's a white man. Mm -hmm. And that if it isn't, you do hear a racial identifier, like a black man was arrested today, yeah. da, 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 da. So even just very subtle things like that, where you have like an assumed um, standard or an assumed identity, like that's part of what maintains whiteness at the center of everything as like this kind of norm. And there's so many examples of that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so part of my personal growing and, and come back to this. So mm -hmm. I, I've been reading white fragility. Mm -hmm. It's blowing my mind <laughs> by the way, because there, I mean, you know, mm -hmm. clearly, I mean, you, you outed me here. I am a white person. <laughs> and, but the number of things that, mm -hmm. I mean, you just talking about white being, being the mm -hmm, norm mm -hmm. and, we have no racial stamina. Like mm -hmm. I've never had mm -hmm. to consider mm -hmm. my race mm -hmm. the way other people do. Mm -hmm. And therefore I have no idea. Right. If the norm matches you, like I know these seem like silly examples, but again, you're, you know, when they match you, it seems like no big deal. When yeah. they don't match you, it's like death by a thousand cuts. Right. Yeah. So things like crayons 
that have a color that's the color of my skin and it's called flesh, right? Like the presumption yeah. is that that's the norm or a Band-Aid that's flesh-colored Band-Aid but that matches my skin but doesn't match my friend whose family's from Pakistan, right? Or um, nude pantyhose, right? Like the nude pantyhose make it look like I'm not wearing anything, but mm -hmm. if you put it on someone with darker skin, it absolutely would. Yeah. So it's all of these kind of small ways. I think the other, um, well, there's a couple things. One, um, and Daniel and I really stress this too, that when you're thinking about racism specifically, this is a really basic definition and it can get more complicated than this, but kind of like entry level understanding is to think about prejudice which everyone is susceptible to prejudice. And I would argue everybody has some level of prejudice from mm -hmm. what they grew up hearing or what media they consume or their own experiences. Like that's a human nature thing to have some kind of prejudice. The difference between having prejudice and then rising to the level of like an ist or an ism, sexist or racist or ableist, is that your prejudice has power to enforce your prejudice as what counts. So it, it's going to matter in terms of the consequences for someone else's life or the distribution of resources. So yeah. this idea of prejudice plus power, um, what that means is that, sure, let's talk about race specifically, um, black, indigenous, and people of color could certainly have prejudice against other people of color or white people, but if they don't have institutionalized power to enforce that prejudice, then it can't rise to the level of anism. And so because of our country's history and our current situation, whiteness in so many ways is at the center. And so that then allows that particular prejudice to, to matter in really consequential ways for other people. Um, yeah, would you recommend this book to other people? <laughs> Absolutely would. I'm probably halfway through it yeah, um, yeah, right now. Yeah. And it is, and I'm going to reference it again yeah. coming up. But I want to hit a couple other, sure. couple other things. Let's talk about. Um, <laughs> this is so much, and like so we're much. just like nuggets, nuggets. Yeah. Yes. Implicit bias. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. Okay, define it. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So implicit bias, that's kind of a hot, sexy term, and I definitely have given presentations about it places in a, it is a thing, and it's very mm -hmm. consequential. I want to make sure people don't think because now there's a lot of conversation in mainstream circles around implicit bias that we've resolved explicit bias. We have not. Explicit okay. bias right. is still a thing too, yep. but implicit bias um, is this sense of um, that your intention and your belief is that you don't want to hold that prejudice mm -hmm. and you don't recognize the ways in which like subliminally or subconsciously you are. Right. So there's actually a test I really recommend people take. It's through Harvard Project Zero. It's called the Implicit Association Test and it's free online. Um, you can just sign up and take it for free. Um, and what it basically walks through is trying to assess the close associations that have been built in your mind around like good and bad for all different categories, race, sexual identity, gender. And it basically works like this. Like if you if I say peanut butter, you say jelly. Right, because peanut butter goes with jelly. That's correct. And we know that that's like culturally, we know that that's yep. true for our community. But if I then teach you, okay, for this game, when you see soap, that goes with peanut butter. So whenever soap comes up on the screen, you need to click your peanut butter button. It's going to take you a little bit longer to hit that button than oh, when yeah. jelly comes up because, oh, I've known it's peanut butter and jelly my entire life. Mm -hmm. You just taught me it's peanut butter and soap, so okay, I can do it, but it's gonna take me a little longer. And so this quiz online 
basically um, is testing people's ability to make those associations, which then reveals which associations are easier for you to make than others. Um, and around race in particular, it's like positive adjectives and negative adjectives associated with people from different races. And if it takes you a little bit longer to connect positive associations with people of color, then what that's revealing is that you've been socialized. And it, it's not surprising, given our media and our history and the segregation that exists in our country, that people have this kind of implicit association of negative things with people of color and positive things with white people. So it's, and same is true for gender and sexual identity and ability. So it's not, um, the idea of implicit bias is trying to get people to recognize that our brains are making these associations and it's not to say, so Eric, you are a horrible person because that's what your brain is doing. It's to yes. say, yeah, that's a product of all these years of socialization that you've been on this earth. And so if you are critically conscious, you don't beat yourself up about that, but you try to pay attention to when that might manifest itself and when that might be the engine of your actions so that you can try to use a different part of your brain to inform what you do and not rely on this kind of like subconscious part of your brain. So I want to use two examples and I want you to respond to them. Now I took these examples from okay. you and Daniel. Okay. Um, and so kind of figure out how to way to, to, to weave this in, but I'll okay. offer um, examples that you guys provided. They weren't from our district, okay. Okay. Um, but I think they're probably very common. Okay. So um, I'm a teacher or mm -hmm. I'm an administrator and I'm in a building and I see a mm -hmm. black student walking mm -hmm. down the mm -hmm. hall. Mm -hmm. I say, hey, where are you going? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Half a day later, an hour later, five minutes later, mm -hmm. it doesn't matter. I see um, two white girls walking down the hall and don't say a thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. Your response. Super common. And um, I'm actually thinking of a focus group that I did with students uh, at a suburban school, and they actually themselves shared numerous examples, and this was a focus group of white students, um, where once we asked them, you know, does any of this ever happen in your school? And they said, oh my God, yeah, now that I think about it, all the time, like I never have a pass. I never even think to get a pass because I've never been stopped. And meanwhile, I constantly see um, kids who are clearly holding passes get stopped who are kids of color. Um, one kid, the story he told that I thought was so interesting, he said, you know what, come to think of it, um, the other day I was walking with a blowtorch into the building from my car that he needed to um, build a set for the theater department. Yeah. And Very legit. Totally legit reason, yep. right? He wasn't there to do any damage, but he um, had to park on the opposite side of the school, so he wasn't anywhere near the theater department. He was going to have to walk through the school. So he was walking and carrying this blowtorch. This he, is a white kid. A white kid, yeah. and he walked right by the hall monitor, and the hall monitor just kind of waved at him. And a blowtorch. Yeah, holding <laughs> a blowtorch. And then he saw two students in with backpacks holding passes um, two black students, um, black male students, and the hall monitor immediately called them over. He said even a little bit gruffly and like examined their passes and asked them a bunch of questions about where yeah. they were going. So it, it's this, you know, if you had asked that hall monitor, are you racist? <laughs> like I'm guessing that hall monitor wouldn't say yes. And it almost doesn't matter. It's that the actions that they're taking are having these really um, disparate negative outcomes that perpetuate racism. There, um, a scholar, Eduardo Bonilla Silva, talks about racism without racists, saying you can have a lot of people, and this is colorblindness, who say, like, I don't see color, I don't believe in racism, I think that it's really bad. But to 
to not, of course we all, all see it if we're able mm-hmm. to visibly see with our eyes. You know, of course yeah. you can recognize it and see it, and we do. So to deny that you are seeing it is to truly deny the experience of these people and to reject and invalidate this super important part of their identity that dramatically shapes how they interact with the world. So to, to say to parents, let's say, um, oh, don't worry, I don't see color. Your student will be safe with me. If I were a parent, I would be terrified of that yeah. response because then that means you don't see my kid at all and you won't be attuned to the ways that my kid is susceptible and hurting and experiencing school very differently than other kids. You have to be able to recognize that if you're going to do right by those kids. I don't know if you can believe this, but <laughs> we are, we are done with time. That's I know we're out of time, <laughs> but let's do another one. That sounds great. Okay. okay. Well, we're going to wrap up this episode of the Amazing Education Podcast, <laughs> and we very much hope that you in, have enjoyed what, what you heard. Um, our podcast is available on iTunes, on Google Play, and on YouTube because we are videotaping this. And we hope that you share and tell everyone about our podcast because that's going to be a way for to get this conversation to, to more ears and more listeners. So we will be back and we're going to do a part two on this. Thanks, Eric. I appreciate it.